The title of the message tonight is simply The Woman Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess is a, a beacon light, if you will, of love and commitment, a beautiful love story between Ruth uh, the Moabitess, her mother-in-law Naomi, and Boaz, the kingsman redeemer that we will see. The book of Ruth bears the, uh, the heroine's name here of, um, in the Hebrew canon, found second in the third section of the writings because the Hebrew Bible is divided differently. You have Canticles, Ruth, then Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. So it's in that order. And the book is read at Pentecost because of the wheat harvest connection that when she returns with Naomi, as we'll see. And the book shows us God's grace to receive even a Moabite who pledges her love to God by faith. Um, as you know, we'll see the Moabites were barred from the congregation until the 10th generation. And it just so happens that she was the 10th generation. But with God, nothing just so happens. Um, he's in control. And so let's look at Ruth by our threefold picture of Ruth. We want to look at Ruth the bride. We'll see this in chapter 1 from verse 1 to 18. Second, we'll see Ruth the servant from chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 2, verse 23. And then we will finish up seeing Ruth the redeemed in chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 22. We begin with Ruth the bride in chapter 1, the first 18 verses. Uh, now notice in, in uh, verse 1 through 5 of the first chapter, the occasion that brought about Ruth's marriage was uh, through compromise. Mark it well. The time that it came to pass is identified as when the judges rule in verse 1. A time when every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. It's declared twice. Book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, and 21, verse 25. Why do I give you Judges? Because this book of Ruth fits prior on the sixth chapter of Judges. It is during the 305 years of every man doing what's right in his own eye. That's anarchy. This is what you see in our nation today. We've gone from a republic to a form of democracy, which is the worst, to oligarchy, a few over many, and we began 10 years ago, oligarchy, mob rule, no consequences, no law. Very, very clear. That would put that again uh, during the rule of the seven years of Gideon there threshing the wheat at the wine press. Now, look at verse 1 still. The time was a time of famine in the land of Israel. Many times, um, if you read the prophets, we went through the major, the minor prophets. But the minor prophets point out a little more. If they're short there, you pick it up. But famine is uh, used by God to chasten uh, his people, often uh, uh, withholding of rain also. There was famine in the time of Abraham and Jacob in Genesis 12.10, Genesis 43.1. The days of David for Saul killing the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 2.11. Also, in the days of Ahab through the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17.1. And there are many, many others. Um, the man Elimelech was from Bethlehem, Judah. Notice there at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. He went to dwell in the country of Moab. 
Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Malon means sickly or great infirmity. And Chilion means piney or consuming. So if you're going to have a couple of kids, you have a couple of names here you might want to think about. But it's a, it's a mixture of, of, of a sad family to an extent just by the names itself. The tragedy of the family was uh, grievous in verse 3 down to 5. In verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And so she was left alone with her two sons. In verse 4, Malon and Chilion married pagan wives in disobedience to God's word and lived in Moab for 10 years. Any way you want to cut it, they were not supposed to marry unbelievers. Okay? Old Testament or new? That includes the church today. All right? Many believers compromise with God and they end up in trouble. And then they blame God for the decision they've made. Now, God will forgive you. God will be with you. But you have to honor the office and the covenant of marriage. And the only way out is adultery. Or if the non-believer doesn't want to be with you because you're Christian, then you're set free. So God is more gracious to the non-believer in release than the believer. The believer can only leave for adultery. The non-believer can leave if he doesn't want to be with a Christian because God doesn't force anybody. Is that clear? Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about it. We went through that very, very clear. Now, their names were Oprah, Orpah, not Oprah. Ew, that's not a name in the Bible. Um, Orpah, which means fun. Um, and Ruth, which means friend or beautiful. The Moabites, as you know, were descendants of Lot through the incestuous relationship with one of his daughters in Genesis 19, verse 36 to 37, as the angels got Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before judgment came. Uh, the Moabites refused to give them passage, bread and water. Uh, when they were coming through the land, they hired Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22, 1 through 8. And for this reason, they were barred from entering the congregation of the Lord till the 10th generation. And it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 through 6. Now, notice they're related through Lot. But God didn't call Lot out. He called Abraham out. God did not promise Lot. He promised Abraham. Is that clear? Jacob, Esau, two nations. Jacob is Israel. That's the nation God picked, not Esau. Okay, the Edomites. Very clear. Romans 9. Okay. Nehemiah recalled God's prohibition to those who had intermarried with Ammonites and Moabites after they returned from Jerusalem. This is after the Babylonian captivity in Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3. They spoke half of the uh, Hebrew language and, and, and the other one. They just, it, they were all messed up. And he commanded them to leave them. Wow. Now notice the two sons died also. 
at the end of the ten years, leaving the three women alone there in verse 5. From verse 6 down to 13, we have the release from marriage that was refused by Ruth here. In verse 6 and 7, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law and view that her husband and sons had died, for she had heard in Moab, word got over to Moab, that Yahweh had visited his people with giving them bread. Verse 6 and 7. Naomi, in verse 8 through 10, released her two daughter-in-laws from any obligation to her so they could return to their mother's houses. In verse 8, Naomi expressed her appreciation of their loving faithfulness to her sons and to her also by um, desiring that the Lord deal kindly with, uh, with them. They had been, so it doesn't mean that non-believers cannot be good husbands or wives. It's just that you're on two different wavelengths. You're on FM and they're on AM. You have different morals, different standards. And it's very conflicting. In verse 9, Naomi revealed the genuineness of her love. There she expressed her love by desiring that both the women would find rest as they remarried. Her husbands are dead. She demonstrated her affection by kissing them, and they wept together also. This is not an act. This is not a way to get rid of them. This is very difficult. There's been years they've been bonding together, and, and that's the difficulty when you disobey God and things happen, and all of a sudden now it's rather than obeying what God says, we jump into things, and then now it's an emotional issue. You look at immigration. It's a law. If it would have been taken care of 30, 40 years ago, it wouldn't be an emotional issue now, right? We always do that. And then we try to rationalize it away. Notice in verse 10, the commitment to Naomi was declared by their reluctance to leave. Surely we will return with you to your people. Now this is, this is a commitment because they're not to dwell with non-believers. Allow them to come in. You know, people are people, right? And you're going to you draw lines, you, you, you marginalize people. That's just the way we are as sinful people. Verse 11 through 14, Naomi reasoned with the two women. In verse 11, she asked them if she still had more sons in her womb to be their husbands because they don't want to leave. And in 12 and 13, she declared she was too old to have a husband. And if she did conceive even that day, would they wait for them to be a marriageable age? <laughs> of course not. And at the end of 13, she expressed her sorrow and her much grief for their sakes. No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord Yahweh has gone out against me. Keep that in mind. Sometimes people express that Naomi was bitter, that this was not God's judgment. She knows it was. Follow the dialogue. Follow the narrative. 
How ironic that um, their names tell their story. They lived in the city called House of God, but they did not trust God for bread as the others that remained at Bethlehem, nor did they praise God through the famine as their God and King in a pleasant manner, but rather sought to take matters into their own hands and, and do things for themselves, being sick, spiritually, and consumed. Wow. And how I have seen in 45 years people who have taken their own lives in their own hands after having come to Christ, after seeing God's hand upon them and God blessing and directing and bring destruction on their lives. Horrible things. Now, either God will intervene directly or he'll hand you over to your decisions and the consequences. And that's the way he'll destroy you. One of the two, ladies and gentlemen. God really doesn't have to do anything. We disobey him. We're dead. We'll bring destruction to ourselves. Look at 14 through 18. The loyalty of Ruth was far and beyond marriage obligation. In 14, the widow Orpha wept again, kissed her mother-in-law, and went home. Difficult decision to go. But the widow Ruth clung to Naomi. The word cling there means to glue together and is the same used for marriage for husband and wife in Genesis 2.24. Glued together. The only way you separate it and when you do there's slivers of each. It's not a clean break. They become one. The widow Naomi, look at 15, pointed out to Ruth that her sister-in-law had gone back to her people and God's. And she should also. The very fact that you as a Christian would tell one of your daughter-in-laws because your son dies, hey, listen, go back to your pagan gods would be sent to you. You understand? It's not being compassionate. It's not being loving. That's being treacherous towards God. That's why what we're going to read ahead is God's my God is merciful. I mean, God should smoke us every day. Mercy, less than we deserve. There seems to be a progressive revealing of the spiritual compromise both Elimelech and Naomi had made, first by her acknowledgement that God's hand had gone out against her. We just read that. Then by her allowing the unequally yoked marriages of her children to women of Moab who worshipped other gods. Do you supervise your children, who they hang out with? Listen to, listen to me. No one ever dates someone they don't hang out with. Duh. Okay? You allow your children to spend a lot of time with non-believers, especially when they get older. And when it starts when it's young, they're going to marry one of them. Am I clear on this? The commitment of Ruth to Naomi is recorded for us in 16 and 18, 16 through 18. 
In uh, 16, she begins, through steadfast love is declared, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge, for your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She chose to come under the wing of the God she had served. Even though she had made a compromise, Ruth could see the difference between living under the order of Yahweh and that of the pagan gods, even at this point. In 17, Ruth's selfless love is described. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Ruth's own oath here was to Yahweh God. In 17, at the end there, her decision to follow Yahweh rather than the gods of her people was a personal decision. You cannot force anybody to be a Christian. You cannot force anybody to come to church. You cannot force anybody to study the word of God. You cannot force anybody to obey the word of God. It's a high privilege and a personal choice that is made here. Her accountability, notice, was to God, who sees and hears all things. The Lord Yahweh do so to me, and more also. She's saying it to her, but she's making herself accountable to God. Naomi, you don't know my heart, but God does. All right? Here's her escape clause. Ready? Death. If anything but death parts you and me, woe. Two pagan ladies. One heart was open to God, the other one was not. Look at 18. Ruth, having made herself strong on her decision, was no longer opposed by Naomi. She stopped speaking to her about the matter. In the life of a um, man named Charles Lamb, there was um, an attachment to a woman. But um, he willingly forsook marriage when he saw the need of his own family, brother, son, and husband. He became as a guardian angel of that home and especially of his sister Mary, who was at times mentally deranged. After she had stabbed her mother to death in one of her mad moments, Charles Lamb stripped himself for his sister Mary as Jonathan stripped himself for David, humbling himself. And for eight and thirty years, he watched over her with tender solicitude. A friend tells how he would uh, sometimes see the brother and sister walking hand in hand across the field to the old asylum both their faces bathed in tears. A sad story, and yet a grand story of commitment and loyalty. We're living in a society, ladies and gentlemen, that this type of loyalty and commitment to God or people just doesn't, doesn't go anymore. The whole culture focuses and, and um, dogmatically declares your love for yourself your rights. It's arrogant. 
This was Ruth the bride. Committing all. Next comes Ruth the servant. Chapter 1 verse 19 down to chapter 2 verse 23. In 119 to 22, Ruth was willing to not be the center of attention. Notice this. In 19 there, the entire city was excited about um, them returning. But Naomi was the focus of attention. Is this Naomi? Ruth knew she was a foreigner. Ruth knew that she was there for Naomi. Ruth knew she had trusted in the God of Israel. Notice in verse 20, the response of Naomi was that um, they not call her Naomi pleasant, but Mara bitter for the almighty El Shaddai. Literally, that which provides nourishment from the breast like a, for a child, El Shaddai, had dealt bitterly with her. Her own words. In 21, the widow Naomi further stated she had gone out full and returned empty since the Almighty had afflicted her. Now, either she's revealing truth or she's bitter at God and accusing him falsely. As I follow the narrative, it's the first. After all those years and all that happened, she knew this was God's hand against him for the decision they made. Real simple to me. It's not that difficult. The word afflicted means um, to break or be broken. God at times has to break us for trusting our own resourcefulness, our self-dependency, that he might work in us. But even sometimes, even the breaking of a person, humbling of a person, they are so proudful and so hard. There's nothing that can be done. Again, God doesn't twist your arm and God doesn't force you to obey. But as a loving father, he will do everything to try to make you turn because he wants to forgive. He wants to restore. He wants to bless. God has nothing to gain from you or I except a headache if he could get one. Um, he has nothing to gain in this in this covenant. Nothing. He needs nothing. He's self-existing. Notice the second proclamation stated that all was due to the hand of God's judgment. Both proclamations were acknowledgment they had taken their lives into their own hands and in their self-will did not choose to trust God nor obey him. There was a famine in that. Well, let's move to Moab. And, and you see that in other people's lives. They little compromise. Well, let's just go here. Let's just go there. Well, let's just not, you know, and it's just one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then pretty soon you, you're out there. Did you still call yourself a Christian? Still say, well, I read my Bible. What does that mean? In verse 22, the woman, the women here arrive at the beginning of the barley season towards the end of April. They have returned from Moab, which means uh, of his father, describing the incestuous birth through the eldest daughter of Lot, uh, which was displeasing to God in Genesis 19, 36 to 38, declares it. 
They had returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, returning to a right and pleasant relationship to God. Man should not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. House of bread. God was not in Moab. He chose the land of Israel. That's where he chose for his people. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Ruth was willing to be the provider for Naomi. The man Boaz, in verse 1, was a relative of Naomi's husband. He was uh, related through Naomi's descendant, deceased husband, Elimelech. It says in verse 1 there. And he was a man of great wealth. He was named Boaz, which means the Lord is strength or um, quickness. Great name. He was from Bethlehem, Ephrata. Um, we have in chapter 2, verse 4 here, also the, uh, in chapter 4, verse 11. And the woman Ruth, noted verse 2, requested permission to go glean heads of grain. The gleaning was after the provision of the law, leaving the corners of the field unharvested for those who were destitute, poverty. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, Leviticus 23, 22, Deuteronomy 24, 19. The poor of the land, California, they should let them go in the fields, leave corners, let them work for their food. Put them to clean the highways. Not the prisoners, they'll get away. There's a lot better way to help people. Let them help themselves. Don't burden the people that are working hard. It's real simple. Notice she expressed hopefulness by the expression in whose sight I may find favor, implying mercy here. In verse 3, the text says that Ruth happened to come to the fields of Boaz. I made mention of that in the beginning of the sermon. Nothing happens by chance when one knows the Lord, and nothing is overlooked by God when done to one of God's people. It's not the rolling of the dice. You don't pray with your fingers crossed and a horseshoe in your pocket. Okay? That's pagan. Ruth had committed herself to Yahweh rather than the gods of Moab. God knew that. The psalmist tells us that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord Yahweh. And he delights in his ways. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. This should be a confirmation to what has happened to your life through the years. You've seen God's faithfulness because you follow the Lord. The difficult times he's brought you through. The times of despair. The times of confusion, the times of great pain and tragedy. You should be very familiar with these verses in this life experience as a child of God. In verse 4 through 13 of chapter 2, Ruth was willing to humble herself. In verse 4 through 6, the occasion was when Boaz came from Bethlehem to his fields and took notice of Ruth. The relationship between employer and employee was godly 
despite that it was during the time of judges when everybody was doing their own. So here you have, everybody is anarchical. They're doing their own thing. And here you have a group of people in the midst of this dark time. By the way, 305 years it lasted. More than our nation has even been alive in existence. And here you have this group of people that are just faithful to the Lord in spite of the darkness. The majority is always wrong. The faithful are always the minority. Never forget that. Bible is very clear. Verse 5. The inquiry was to his servants who was in charge of the reapers. Uh, Whose young woman is this? The servant pointed out that it was Ruth. She had come back with Naomi from the country of Moab. The woman Ruth had pleaded for permission to glean. Verse 7 says... She revealed her humility by her words. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she was familiar with the law. She is related to Israel through Lot, but he's not the chosen race. But here she's come under the provisions of God through a compromising marriage. Wow. The very task was a mark of poverty and destitution. To reap the fields. The fact that she was the enemy of Israel magnifies her humility. She revealed her circumstances here or her earnestness of the circumstances to work by her actions. So she came till now, though she rested a little in the house. Verse 7 at the end. Verse 8 through 14, the woman Ruth was not publicizing what she had done for Naomi, but it was widely known. In verse 8, Boaz invited her to remain in his fields for safety among the women in view of her care for Naomi, affirming her acceptance. In verse 9, Boaz assured her of her protection from the young man also and to quench her thirst as she needed by drawing water by the young man. Notice she expressed her unworthiness by falling on her face in verse 10 and bowing down to the ground. She didn't say, well, the law says I can come in here and do whatever I want. No entitlement. Humble. She declared gratitude by her words there in verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Not one of Israel. When word and deed become one, 1 John 3.18 says that becomes truth. A lot of people say a lot of things. You know how we were in the world. The sad commentary is that a lot of Christians continue in their carnal ways. And though there's initial change, then they just don't grow and develop and they just live under their sin nature. How long can you live like that? I don't know. 
I have no idea. I have no, not even a desire to find out. Notice in verse 11 through 13, Boaz declared to her all that had been told him about her benevolence. Her cleaving to Naomi and the abandoning of her own family and native land, willing to come to the people she did not know. In verse 11, news travels fast. She was reaping to the kindness she had sown. She was a model of faithful love, putting others first. She was courageous, knowing she could have been treated as an outcast, being a Moabitess. Verse 12, her recompense was from God. Don't miss this. From God. Boaz declares his desire that the Lord give her a full reward for her work of love. Boaz tells her also that she had actually come for refuge under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. It would have been real easy for Boaz to say, yeah, you know what, and you know, and come and clean my house when you get done. Wow. He realizes that God has blessed him in, in a period of time when everything's going crazy and is crazy, and yet they've trusted God and God has blessed them, but he's given them power and authority and provisions, not just to lord over people, not to be tyrannical against people, not to just abuse people, but to see how God will use them for people. Wow. What a novel idea. Her humbleness was consistent, expressed by her gratitude and recognition of his favor, though she was a foreigner, verse 13. Now look at verse 14 to 23 of chapter 2. Ruth was willing to receive kindness. This is difficult at times because people are pride, proudful and arrogant. 14 through 16, Boaz yields himself as the instrument of God to reward Ruth. Uh, in 14, he gave her a place of acceptance before the reapers at a mealtime by his personal invitation and identifying her uh, with her. This is meant a lot. It, it marked her protection and provision here. In verse 15, he commanded this young man to let her glean even among the sheaves, and to not reproach her. So he's, he's, he's going a little overboard here, okay? I'm sure she was um, a good-looking girl, too. I mean, he's a lot older. She's a younger woman. We're going to see this, okay? But though, though, though that can be part of the information, the, the, the testimony from within the text is that he understood what was going on, and he was acting this way towards her because of her commitment to God, all right? That's the focus. He told them in verse 16 to also purposely drop grain from the bundle so that she would have abundant reaping that day and to not rebuke her. God uses his people to bless others as an extension of God's love. Maybe when you were young and you didn't have much and there were loving Christians that understood your condition and you went to the check or you went to your mailbox and you found an envelope with money in it or, 
or they mail, somebody mailed you something, or they did something for you, you went away and there's some groceries maybe and you're that. You forget all that. And now you're better off. Do you, do you remember God's goodness? Is it only one-sided? Is it only one-way street? Or is it two-way street? Very important. We forget so quickly. 17 through 23, Boaz was seen as the kingsman redeemer. Look at 17. Ruth gleaned till the evening and beat out what she had gleaned. About a nephah, which is about six and a half to seven uh, and a half gallons. Enough for about five days for her and Naomi. And in verse 18, she returned to the city and saw what she had gleaned. Um, that is Naomi. And she gave it to Naomi and, and uh, for food that she had saved. And you find that verse 18 again and 14 back there. And her love for Naomi was great and selfless. On a consistent basis as you follow this. In verse 19, Ruth's mother-in-law was astonished at her abounding reaping. And asked her where she had gleaned. Blessing the one who had noticed her. In which time Ruth declared that she had worked with a man named Boaz. (laughs) I can imagine Naomi's eyes just lit up. Ruth's mother-in-law in in verse 20 instantly prayed a blessing on Boaz from the Lord for not forsaking kindness to the living and the dead and told Ruth that he was a close relative. Here's the key word. A kingsman, the Goel, the family redeemer in line of redemption. Just happened to be so. I don't think so. Ruth told Naomi in 21 to 23 of his words to stay close to the young men till the end of all the harvest, which Naomi concurred. So Ruth stayed close to the young women of Boaz and dwelt with her mother-in-law, it says. Remember the true evidence of a servant is when you are treated like a servant and you don't like it or are offended. You find out you're not a servant real quick. You can say anything you want. But when someone treats you like a servant, whether they be non-believers or believers, how do you respond? If you don't like it, then you're not a servant. If you're offended, well, who are they? They just saw you were a servant. Hmm. This was Ruth the servant. Notice thirdly comes uh, Ruth the redeemed. Chapter 3 down to chapter 4. In 3, 1 through 4, Ruth was a woman of faith. In first two verses, Naomi was going to instruct Ruth in order to seek rest for her. The indication was to have Boaz redeem the property and marry Ruth in verse 1. In verse 2, the man would be winnowing at night at the threshing floor. This is the backdrop. Naomi gave Ruth advice according to the customs of the day from verse 2 there on down to 4. And she was to get prepared by washing 
anointing herself and putting on her best garment to go down to the threshing floor, the beginning of verse 3 says. Separating the wheat from the shaft by throwing it up into the air, the wind would blow away the shaft, the wheat would come down. She was not to make herself known till the men had finished eating and drinking, the end of verse 3 says. She was then to notice where Boaz lied down, uncover his feet, and lie down by his feet until he told her what to do, verse 4. This, don't read into this, some modern-day seduction, like two teenagers in the backseat of a car or something, okay? This is not a seductive plot that's going on. This is the custom and the process and the procedure when you're seeking the kingdom redeemer to take up the mantle and coverage as we'll see to redeem you in marriage and raise up seed in the name of the dead person. Verse 5 to 18. Ruth was a woman of obedience. In verse 5, she told Naomi all she had instructed she would do. The instruction had nothing to do with being immoral or seducing Boaz. Again, very important. Because today, a lot of the exposition that goes on, like texts like these or the Song of Solomon, I have heard exposition that is it's pornographic in their description from the pulpit. And it's totally absent from the text. And people are spiritualizing and just interpreting as subjective because of the crude and rude and broken down society that we live in. They have the freedom, I guess they think, that they can do that to the scriptures also. God help them. God help them. Verse 6 through 9, she acted in accord with her accustoms of the land revealing to her, revealed to her by Naomi. In 6 and 7, she did according to Naomi's instructions. And A, she being at his feet, startled Boaz about midnight. <laughs> and you've been working hard all day. You're dozing off and all of a sudden you feel something at your feet. In verse 9, she was asked who she was and identifying herself as Ruth, his maidservant, asked Boaz to fulfill the duty of kinsman the Goel. The phrase, take your maidservant under your wing, was the cultural expression for redemption. Leviticus 25, 25, verse 28, verse 48 and 49. Notice the identity is clear. A close relative, meaning the Goel, the one to redeem her out of poverty and debt. You see it in chapter 3, verse 12, verse 13, 4, 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 8, verse 14. Over and over and over again. Even to the present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws his skirt or end of his tilleth over her to signify he has taken her under his protection. Notice verse 11 through 18, Ruth was assured by Boaz he would attempt to fulfill the duty of a kinsman. In verse 10, she was con uh, commended uh, for her kindness. 
He blessed her in the Lord, verse 10 at the beginning. He declared in the rest of 10 that she had shown more kindness now at the end than at the beginning of her kindness in that she did not choose to go after a younger man, whether poor or rich. The implication being that Boaz was no spring chicken, but in fact a much older man than Ruth. Look at verse 11. Ruth was told by Boaz she was not to fear, for he would do all she had requested, and all the people of Bethlehem knew she was a virtuous woman. Ruth was informed by Boaz that he truly was a goel in the line, but there was one who had the right before him, and if he chose to exercise his right, that was the way it would be. But if not, he swore by the Lord that he would perform the duty and told her to lie down till the morning in verse 12 and 13. So there's the, in the law, there's the priority of who's first in line and who follows. And he's telling her, hey, there's a guy in front of me. If he chooses to decide, I have no choice. Honorable, straightforward, on both ends. The redeemer of property and person is provided in the law in Leviticus 25, in Deuteronomy 25. The redeemer of the year of Jubilee also in Leviticus 25 also. And the avenger of blood, the goel, in Numbers 35, 19. If someone killed your brother, your relative, you had the duty to go avenge that blood and he would flee to one of the refuge cities. Three on one side and three on the other side, east and west. And that guy had to get there before you caught him, okay? <laughs> then they would gather the judges, find out whether it was an accident or whether it was a premeditated murder or whatever. And they would deal with it. Now notice in verse 14 and 15, Ruth and Boaz arose before dawn so as not to be noticed and he gave her six ephods of barley to return to the city in verse 14 and 15. And then Ruth communicated in verse 16 through 18 to Naomi the message Boaz when he, she arrived at the home. You can only imagine Naomi is probably at home just, you know, trying to find out, waiting patiently. And she told her all that Boaz had done for her in verse 16 and she showed the deed uh, the deeds of Boaz, the barley, was kind of like a down payment. And um, in verse 18, she was assured by the words of Naomi, sit, um, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. In other words, Naomi knew that he was an honorable man and he would do all that he said and all that he could. In spite of the day they were living, others didn't live like that. Others were not people of their word. Others were not walking with God. Look at verse 1 through 12 now of chapter 4. Ruth was a woman blessed by God. In 1 through 4, Boaz sought out to redeem Ruth. He sat at the gate and uh, the place of judgment by the leading elders who um, presided over the city and uh, waited till the close relative came by to discuss the matter in verse 1. 
And in verse 2 through 4, he took ten men of the elders to hear the case as they sat and proceeded to inform the close relative of Naomi's return from Moab and his right to redeem um, um, that which was hers. But if he decided to do so, um, then if he didn't, then he would be the next in line. So he informs them of all this. And in verse 5 and 6, notice Boaz informed the kinsman redeemer of, his, of the conditions he has to meet of the redemption right. In verse 5, he declared to him that for him to fulfill the redemptive right, he had also to take Ruth as his wife and raise up seed to the dead relatives so that his name would not die out or be blotted out of Israel. In verse 6, Boaz was told by the relative that he could not redeem the field and Ruth, lest he mar his own inheritance. And so he gave Boaz the right of redemption. Now, is all this by chance? Of course not. Look at 7 through 12. Boaz fulfilled the customary ritual for redemption. In verse 7, the provision was in the law. Listen to the provision. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go uh, into her, meaning sexually, take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will, su will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, he said, no way, I'm not marrying her. Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders. The gate is where the government, the decisions, all the decisions made. Um, and let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, my, hus my, my husband's uh, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, You uh, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. That was a horrible thing. Consequences, order, honesty, honorableness. Dirty words in our society today. Character, virtue, patriotism, truth. Dirty words. They've been substituted with political correctness, non judgmental, non evaluation. Jesus was confronted with this provision in the law regarding the resurrection in Matthew 22 24. You know, this gal had uh, all seven brothers whose wife she's going to be in the resurrection. <laughs> you do wear not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. And in, in the resurrection, we're not given in marriage. <laughs> Be like the angel. We don't, we don't have to procreate in heaven. We have to procreate down here, not up there. Look at verse 8 through 10. The declaration was proclaimed by Boaz in verse 8 through 10. In verse 8, the close relative gave Boaz a rise, so he took off his sandal. And then um, the man Boaz told the elders that they were witness 
uh, witnesses to his redemption of all that was the Limelechs, Chilions, and, the, and Malons from the hand of Naomi in verse 9. The widow of Malon, Ruth, the Moabites, he had acquired as his wife to perpetuate the seed of the dead through the inheritance that his name not be cut off from among the brethren in his position at the gate that they were also witnesses here. Very important in verse 10. Everything done decent and in order. This is the law, the legality of it. In 11 through 12, the people at the gate pronounced the blessing upon Boaz. In verse 11, that they were witnesses to all he said and did. The people you invite to your wedding, they're witnesses to what you're saying to that woman or that man up there. And if you want to break that vow, they're supposed to be the first one to get in your face. They're not there just to party. I know that's the way it is today. They're there to hold you accountable. What? We're so far gone as a nation. Even within the Christian community, ladies and gentlemen. That Ruth might be as Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. Verse 11. In the end of 11, that Boaz might prosper in Ephrata, Bethlehem, and be famous. Then in 12, that Boaz's house be like the house of Perez, who bore, who Tamar bore. Well, you remember of whose tribe the Bethlehemites were. Tamar, one of another nation, as Ruth was, and from whom sprung very numerous families, one of the five families of Judah, and they wished that the family of Boaz and by Ruth might be as numerous. Judah married, he got his daughter-in-law pregnant, thinking she was a prostitute on the road, because he didn't keep his word to her. Interesting. Look at 13 through 17. Ruth was identified with the family of God. Wow. 13 through 17. And 13, Boaz went into Ruth, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 14 through 15, the woman pronounced a blessing on Naomi. They acknowledged that it was God who had not left her without a goel. Boaz was the mere instrument. Verse 14. A desire, their desire was that she be famous in Israel, also 14. And they desired that the child would be as restorer of life and want to sustain her in her old age, and beginning verse 15. And they pointed out that Ruth loved her and was better than seven sons, verse 15, the end. In verse 16, Naomi became a nurse to the child. What a blessing. They proclaimed that a son had been born to Naomi due to the fact of continuing her son's name. The name, they named him Obed, whose name means serving. Verse 17, he is the father of Jesse, which means I possess, who was the father of David, beloved. See the connection? Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of David. Wow. Look at 18 through 22. Ruth is lined up with the genealogy of Christ. The line of press is the kingly line, verse 18. 
The genealogy is verified in verse 18 through 22. First Chronicles chapter 2, 9 through 15 also verifies it. The name Boaz was the great grandmother here of David, as I said, uh, through Ruth, um, king of Israel, and Nobed was his grandfather. Verse 21 through 22. The very genealogy is found in Matthew's gospel for the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. You also find it in Luke 3, 22 through Mary's. Ruth is a picture of the Gentiles to be received by grace. Ruth is a picture of the failure or the future fulfillment when we will be wed to Christ through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Ruth and Boaz are a type of the redemptive love story of Jesus Christ, his bride, the church. Marriage to a person who has been honest regarding their past and shortcomings is like the redemption by Christ in that the person knows that the person's willingness to marry them is not based on their purity or perfection, but love for them. Honesty and love go together, ladies and gentlemen. Otherwise, it's contradiction. This was Ruth, the redeemed. And so as we have looked at Ruth through this threefold picture of her, what incredible lessons we have for ourselves. Ruth the bride, we're the bride of Christ. Ruth the servant, we're to be the servants of Christ. Ruth the redeemed. And man, have we been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. Father, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Pray tonight you would deal with our hearts, Lord, as we look to you. We thank you for your grace, your love, and your mercy over our life. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet or the radio. You're out there somewhere. Jesus loves you. He died for you. If you call on his name, he will forgive you and make you his child. A prayer of repentance, agreeing with God that you're a sinner, separated from God, in need of forgiveness to be redeemed by the work of the cross, his atoning grace. Simple prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.